don't we just listen to this music for a moment as we dismiss the kindergarten through second graders? And you'll just remember the lighting of a fuse, do you not? Whether you're the uh, old school Mission Impossible person or the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible person. You have in your mind, do you not? That picture of uh, there's some mission. It's going to be impossible and somehow somebody's going to come in and make it happen. Thank you, Pete. Well, I'm sure that got everybody awake because, you know, the music itself makes you want to sort of look around like, is somebody going to come through the window or do I need to do something? Because just just the way the music is built and your understanding of it, you feel like I, I need to sit up. I need to be uh, paying attention. There, there's some kind of problem and somebody needs to address it. There's some kind of sense of urgency and, and maybe I'm going to be called on a mission to do something that is, is nearly impossible. And so that's the way the music sort of drives you sort of internally to move. And my hope is, is that's the same kind of feeling you would have about the mission of the church. That, that it would make you want to sit up. It would make you want to think there's some kind of urgency that there, there is a problem and, and somebody needs to address that problem. Somebody needs to go out there and make something happen. And, it, and it's going to feel like a nearly impossible mission that the church is called to. And that's what we're thinking about particularly today as we go through our series on the church. We're thinking about what is the mission of the church? What's the purpose? What's the, the primary priority of what the church is supposed to be and, and supposed to be about? Let me begin with a definition. And that might set the tone for us for the rest of the sermon. The primary mission of the church is to be sent into the world to witness to Jesus by proclaiming the gospel and making disciples of all nations. The, the primary mission of the church, the, the, the tip of the spear, is to be sent into the world to witness to Jesus and proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Now, now, this definition is repetitive in the Gospels. In fact, uh, most um, New Testament scholars would say this definition is embedded in each one of the Gospels and also in the beginning of Acts. Let me just mention a few of them. First of all, our uh, passage this morning, Acts Matthew 28, 18, is known as the Great Commission. This is what the people are called to do as part of the church. This very similar Language is used in Luke 24 when Jesus tells his, his disciples, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You, you disciples are witnesses of these things. And then you might remember just before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. So that's the primary thrust. That's the, the tip of the spear for the mission of the church. It's, it's always going to be involved. The church is always going to be involved in a, a variety of endeavors like social justice or relieving suffering. But, but the unique calling, the primary mission is to proclaim, to announce good news 
that there is an eternal justice that will be served. There's an eternal relief of suffering that is ahead. And that comes through the person of Jesus. So as we look at this mission, I want to look at it in three different ways. First, I want us to understand the broad context of the mission. The mission doesn't just come out of nowhere in Matthew 28 or Luke 24 or Acts 1. It has a big context. And I think it's always helpful for us to see as we're looking through this series on the church. We're always going to be using the, the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. We're going to see these sweeping, the sweeping grand story of how God is moving through human history. So we want to look at the context. The second, I want to just make some observations about this text, Matthew 28. And then just briefly at the end, I want to close with the significance of our mission. First, the context. It's helpful, as I said, to step back and and see that when you come to the Great Commission, uh, you've arrived really at the end of the story, almost the end of the story. When you come to Matthew 28 and you come to the Great Commission, you're, you're sort of turning the page, as it were, onto the last chapter of human history. Uh, the New Testament writers talk about we're, we're living in these last days. And so we want to understand what the, 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 the story or the context is Uh, behind this great commission here on this last chapter. There's a lot of ways to think about the the story or the account of the Bible, but probably the easiest way is to think of it as in four different acts. One is creation, then there's the fall, and then there's redemption, and then consummation. It's a pretty standard way of sort of just looking at the, the broad story of the Bible. There's the creation. We know some about that story. Then there's the fall that almost immediately follows the creation. And then there's redemption. And at the very end, Revelation, there's the consummation of all things. First, creation. In the beginning, God created everything, and everything he created was good. And, and the crowning achievement of all of his creation, as we know, was Men and women, humanity, mankind. That was the the very uh, pinnacle of the creation. And we know that from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God says, Let us make man in our image. See, no other created being was like that. In our likeness. And then he's going to give them sort of God-like characteristics. They're going to rule That's a God-like characteristic. They're going to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So this signals a unique relationship between God and humanity. We're we're given this authority to rule over, over all creation. And although we're not given absolute authority, we're sort of acting as uh, vice regents, as it would be. We're we're acting as representatives of God as we take on his characteristics and we're ruling over the rest of creation. It was an incredible beginning. It was an incredible assignment and everything was very good until we reached Genesis chapter 3. And we come to the second major act in this unfolding story, and that's what we know of as the fall. God planted a tree in the Garden of Eden, and it was a way of, and he commanded the man and the woman not to eat from the tree, and it 
was God's way of establishing a boundary. It's as if he was saying to man uh, that although you're made in my image, you're, you're not to have absolute rule. The, the tree stood as a clear reminder that there was someone to whom humanity had to give an account. And that God alone, as the creator, reserves the right to give commands. So this boundary got established right at the very beginning that, yes, you are going to be these vice regents. You're going to rule. You're going to have this incredible amount of authority. But I, want, I just need to set a boundary. I need to set a marker so that you understand that your rule isn't absolute. It's not unending, that there is somebody that is above you. And the tree is a, a reminder of that. And you might say when you turn to Genesis chapter 3 and you see the disobedience of Adam and Eve, it's the first declaration of independence. The creator was always meant to be dependent on the, the creation was always meant to be dependent on the creator. And in Genesis chapter 3, the creation said to the creator, I'd like to be independent I don't want to be attached to you. And so Adam and Eve overreached. They were duped into believing God couldn't be trusted. They, they falsely believed God was somehow withholding good things from them. And their demand for those things were more important than their desire to obey God. So they grabbed for more power and more authority than God had granted And they wanted God to operate according to their commands. It's really the nut of sin. That's really the core of sin. It's not that we don't necessarily believe that God exists. It's just that we would like to be the one giving the commands. And because he's got a lot of power, we'd like for him to do all the things that we would like. And that's what happened in Genesis chapter 3, this This relationship got severed between creation and creator. And Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. And Adam and Eve had no will and had no way to work themselves back into the garden. So when you finish chapter 3 of Genesis, you understand there's been this great creation that's good. And there's been this tragic fall. And there's been this separation, this severing between man and the creator. And there's no way for man to get back in. And there's not even any will of man to get back in. Man is left untethered in a way, constantly saying, no, we would rather be the person who's telling God what he should do rather than us reacting to his commands. So like a fish in search of greater freedom that decides to jump out of the aquarium The kite that wants to fly higher, so it decides to clip the cord that it's connected to. Mankind decided to sever its relationship with Jesus, with God, thinking we would have more life. And what happens to the fish and what happens to the kite is the same thing that happens to mankind. Death and destruction. The hope was for something more. The lie was that we believed it. And so we severed or we jumped out of the boundaries that God had established, thinking we would have more. And actually, we got a lot, a lot less. And God says to the man and the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, because you listened to your wife 
and you ate from the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. So, so all the symptoms, all the tragic symptoms that happen between men and women, all the tragic symptoms that happen between mankind and itself, all the, the tragic symptoms, all the alienation that happens between mankind and the world, all are a consequence of the alienation that man has from the Creator. G.K. Chesterton, you might know this name, is a famous British writer, wrote a lot of detective nor, uh, stories, was a humorist, was a well-known Christian apologist. And he lived in the early, late 1800s, the early 1900s. And in the London Times, there was an article that was titled this, What's Wrong with the World? And G.K. Chesterton writes back in the editorial And he says this, dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. You see, G.K. Chesterton got it. That that the biggest problem in the world is not out there and not with those folks, but it's in here and it's with me. The biggest problem in the world that you face, that I face, that we face isn't out there. The biggest problem isn't with somebody else. It's not with my spouse or with my kids or with my boss or with my neighbor. The biggest problem I face is inside. And G.K. Chesterton understood really what the word of God was saying, that all the alienation that happens, it's a result of me being disconnected, me being severed from my creator. So the big question is left at the end of Genesis 3 How can a hopelessly rebellious, sinful people ever live in the presence of a perfect and holy and righteous God? If mankind doesn't have any will to get back in and doesn't have any way to get back in, how is it that this relationship or is there any way the relationship can be restored? And the answer in the midst of all the debris of Genesis 3, God gives a promise. It's a little seed that you see grow throughout the Old Testament and it it comes into full bloom as it would be at the person of Christ. Remember the seed, the little promise that God gives in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There, There will be a seed of the woman. There will be somebody that comes from the woman and he will crush Satan. But in his crushing of Satan, he himself will be wounded. And by his wounds, you will be healed. And that's the, that's the promise. That's what gets buried in the soil of this sinful debris. And we see it manifest itself. It's growing through the Old Testament. And then when Christ comes, we say, he's that person. He's the one that was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3. God didn't give up on us. He planted in the debris of our sin a hope, a promise that something that he was going to do would heal us. And that person is the person of Christ. So, so the Bible addresses many areas, important areas of life. But the tip of the spear is about 
what God has done, what, what the work God has done on our behalf so that we might live in a right relationship with him again. So, so that's the backdrop. That's the backdrop when we get to the Christ event, when we get to Jesus showing up. As we understand that there was a creation, there was a terrible fall, there was this promise that was embedded, and, and here Christ comes, and he is the Christ, he is the one. He has died, he's resurrected, he's conquered death, he's conquered our sin. And so that's the context of now Jesus saying to his disciples in Matthew 28, Guys, this is this is the most amazing news. This is an uh, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not uh, advice. It's an announcement that God has actually accomplished something on behalf of men and women. So now you all as these 12 disciples who are going to start the church and and you Christ Community Church 2000 years later, the tip of the spear, the the point of your mission, the main thrust of what you're doing is to continue to make an announcement that Christ is coming that you and I can be again in a relationship with a holy God. That's the main point of what we're supposed to be about. That's the context. And here we are now, the fuse has been lit in the mission impossible. And at some point we're going to get to the end of it and that will be the consummation And the New Testament writers understood that when we look back across the scope of human history, we're going to say that those were the last days. So you and I were we're living in the last days. Now it's our turn as the church to make sure we have the, the tip of the spear out front. That even though we may do a lot of helpful things, we may work on social justice issues, we may work on relieving suffering, the the tip of the spear is to help people understand that they can again have a relationship with the living God. So let's look now at this particular passage in Matthew 28. And let me just make some observations. This is a probably somewhat familiar passage with many of us here, and we've heard different sermons on it. And I just want to make three observations. One, three observations. One, let's look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now right away, you know something big is going to happen. Why? The mountain. That's where all big things happen in the Bible is on the mountain. So we know we are going to the mountain. And when the disciples here were going to the mountain, they know something's going to happen. And probably if you just think biblically, where do you where do you think first where God meets a man on the mountain? Typically, it's Moses giving he's meeting God on Mount Sinai and he's been giving the law on the mountain. And so here we're coming to this mountain, and now Jesus is not going to give this law. He's going to give a new law. It's called the law of the spirit of life, which puts to death the law of sin and death. And he's coming to this mountain to make this announcement. Secondly, when when Jesus first appointed the 12 men to be his disciples, he went up on a mountain and he called the 12 disciples to a mountain to be with him. And not only to be with them, but to say, hey, I'm going to commission you 12 to filter out into the Jewish nation and proclaim the good news. And now we're on another mountain. And what is Jesus saying? Guys, it's not just about 
proclaiming it to the Jewish nation. It's about proclaiming it to every nation. So they're headed towards the mountain. The, uh, the sermon on the mount was on a mountain. That's where God says things. He gives commands. He gives instructions. And you pay attention to what he has to say. That's Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus went up to a mountain, there was called, it was called the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that? He goes up to this mountain and he takes along three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he's transfigured into sort of this bright and blinding figure. And two other people come to this uh, scene, this setting, Moses and Elijah. And they're sort of wrapped in this, what's, what you think of as the glory cloud, this bright cloud. And there are, are these three disciples, these three other men. And then from this cloud, this voice comes out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. This is God speaking. And you remember what he says? Listen to him. If you want to know about life, If you want to know about truth, if you want to know about eternity, this is the person that uniquely needs to be listened to. He is the one. So when you're coming to the mountain, you're coming with Jesus. You know something's going to happen on the mountain. And we're listening in on what now, what he's going to say. And that's verse 18 through 20. This is what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Second observation. The first one is a big announcement because we're going to a mountain. The second is just notice the, the one word that dominates this These sentences is the word all. All authority. All nations. Teaching them to observe everything or all that I have commanded. Jesus is making this sweeping statement. And in some minds a very unpopular statement. He's he's saying I'm completely unique. I have absolute authority over every power and every person. If you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to know what life is about, if you want to know what truth is, if you want to know about eternity, no matter what nation you live in, no matter what you've been taught as a child, no matter what your background is culturally, everything now funnels, every truth funnels through the person of Jesus Christ. Mankind's pressing question of how can a hopelessly rebellious, sinful group of people come back into a right relationship with God is answered in the person of Christ. He alone has authority. He alone is the funnel of the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes before God except through Christ alone. Now, if at this particular point, it starts making you irritated. It makes you agitated that all of this power is focused in one person. All of this authority is narrowed down. If, if somehow it just feels like, how, how is it that Christ can be the only way? 
And you begin to feel like there's a, a straight jacket being put on you that somehow you would like to have more freedom, that you would like to be cut away from this one narrow string that cuts, connects me to God. You now know where that thinking comes from. Where does it come from? Genesis chapter 3. You see, it's not surprising that you might think that way. That's exactly how Adam and Eve thought. Oh, I don't like that it's so narrow. I don't like that I don't get that one thing. I would like God to work the way I would like for him to work. So it's no surprise if that creates some agitation or irritation. And that narrowness is probably the thing that creates the most agitation and irritation with people who are outside the church. But it's not because I'm saying it. It's because Jesus is saying it here on the mountain. All authority over every nation, over every power, over every person belongs in Christ alone. If you want to know what the truth is, if you want to know what life is, if you want to know about eternity, you must come and know who Jesus is. Amen. third observation about the text verse 19 this one sentence go therefore make disciples of all nations the the verb in the sentence is the greek word make disciples now if you're one of the five people here that loves english grammar and i'm not one of you all and i don't understand you all if you like di- if you like if you liked diagramming sentences in the eighth grade, first of all, you're weird. <laughs> but I'm not like that. But let's say you are wired in this way, or let's just say you're 17 and the SAT is on the horizon, and you must learn something about English grammar. Uh, the main verb is making disi- disciples, and it's surrounded by three participles. Participles are verbs. Acting like adjectives. You remember this? Most of you don't. (laughs) And lots of times it ends with ing. That's how you know it's a verb acting like an adjective. And what these, these participles are doing is they're sort of pointing to the main verb and they're saying, if you want to do this main verb, it's going to look like this. They're, they're shining light on how you would make a disciple. So these three participles are going. Secondly, you're baptizing. And third, you're teaching. How do you make a disciple the main verb? You got to go. You got to evangelize. You got to baptize. You got to announce the good news. And then once the announcement has taken hold in lives, you must teach people about how to live with Christ and for Christ. Those are the three participles that are surrounding this one word, make disciples. You see, the main action of the sentence is to make disciples. Which is not about getting the minimum amount of information out to the maximum amount of people. Making a disciple is not about getting the minimum amount of information out to the maximum amount of of people. Making a disciple is getting the maximum amount of information out to the maximum amount of people. Do you understand the difference between that? 
And so often in our structure and even in our mindset and in our practicality, what we think is, if I can just get the, the, the I don't want to call it a thin layer, but I'm going to call it a thin layer. The, the thin layer of the announcement of the gospel. And we want to spread that as widely as we can. And let's just make that that primary goal. We're going to get the, the minimum information out to the maximum amount of people. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to get this big blanket and drape it over people and say, I'm giving you the maximum amount of information to the maximum amount of people. That's the Great Commission. And you may play a part in the going and you may pay, play a part in the baptizing, and you may play, pay, play a part in the teaching. But you see, everybody has a role to go out and have this thick spread of discipleship making. But so, what happens so frequently is across America, across Wilmington, we have a very thin layer spread out. And they know just the minimum amount of information. They're constantly like thin ice breaking through the world's lies and nearly drowning in things that aren't true. Because so many people aren't really disciples. They're not being taught. They're not thickening themselves. It's just I'm holding on to the thinnest of threads, which, look, that's better than holding on on to a lie. But that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is getting the maximum amount of information out to the maximum amount of people. So let me just ask you two sort of questions of evaluation. As a church, are we making disciples? I'd be interested to know, not right now, what you thought about that. I mean, if if the making is is the going... And the baptizing and the teaching, are we doing that or are we somehow a little off balance? We're a little bit more on one and a little bit less on another. Second question, if you're here as a disciple of Christ, are you increasingly taking on the character of Christ? I mean, are you thickening up? You being taught. I mean, yes, at some point you come in and you're get, you've got the minimum amount of information. But as you grow, are you, are you becoming more real? Or are you just stagnant in that, well, I know the minimum amount of information and I've just sort of got it in my back pocket and I'm just hoping it works at the end. But I'm not really becoming a disciple. I'm not really increasing my understanding and my character of Christ. If you need help in that one, I would ask you just to, to talk to me afterwards or talk to an elder or call the church and just say, yeah, I'm holding on to the minimum amount of information, but I, in a year's time, I don't think I've gotten any close to the character of God. Finally, there's uh, a significance. There's an urgency. When you hear the the music, dun, dun, dun. I mean, it just immediately you, you sense something needs to be done and, and something needs to be done now. 
And there needs to be an urgency in every generation. As I stated in the beginning of the sermon, that the church will be involved in many trustworthy endeavors. But there is a tip of the spear. There's one main point, and that's to help people find and follow Jesus. And one of the main reasons that's the tip of the spear is because there's something much worse than death. The reason that's the tip of the spear is because there's something much worse than death. And Jesus says it himself in Matthew 10:26 in this sobering statement. Not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. You hear what he's saying? Death is difficult and tragic and and the sign of sin that it is. There's something a lot worse than just death, and that's hell. And so the tip of the spear, the, the main thrust for the church always has to be addressing that particular issue. And Kevin DeYoung in his book, What is the Mission of the Church, says it so well. Listen carefully. Since hell is real, we must help each other die well. Even more than we help strive to even more than we strive to help our neighbors live comfortably. Since hell is real, we must never think alleviating earthly suffering is the most loving thing we can do. Since hell is real, evangelism and discipleship are not simply options, but are a matter of life and death. Whenever a church loses the ballast of divine judgments, its message, its ministry, and its mission will all eventually change. See, if you don't think there's a hell and that there's a divine judgment, the mission of the church is going to change. And what it's going to change to is something that's alleviating a temporary horizontal problem. As bad as it is, that's not the worst problem. And that's not me saying it. That's me telling you what Jesus is saying. There is a bigger danger of death, and that's a life without God after death. And so I, Christ, am sending the church, these 12 disciples, to say, hey, the tip of the spear, guys, I mean, no matter what else we get involved with here, has got to be the understanding that there's an eternal suffering that can be relieved at the foot of the cross. That's got to be our main message. And as you deal with other horizontal suffering, let's always remember there's a vertical situation that needs to be addressed as our primary issue. As we come to the communion table this morning, and we're inviting all those who are disciples, all those people who have given themselves to Christ and say, I'm, I'm following after Christ. My, my question for you, if you're sitting here and you're not a follower of Christ, you're worshiping something. Because we are created to worship. It's not a matter of if you were worshiping or not. It's a matter of what is it you're worshiping. And my question is, is what you're worshiping, can it alleviate the problem of death forever? How does it address your primary problem with your alienation between you and God? 
But for the majority of us here, we're, we're disciples. And my question to you is you come forward and you say you're, you're coming around the table to, to meet with Jesus in sort of this mystical way. Are you, are you becoming more real? Are you thickening up? Are, are you increasingly taking on the characteristics of Christ? Or are you pretty much the same you were last year? Have you just said, I'm going to take the minimum amount of information. I'm just going to hold on to it forever. But I really don't want the maximum amount of information. And if you don't, then you're not changing. You see, when Christ came to the Last Supper and he took the cup and said, this is the blood of my new covenant. And he took the bread and he broke it and he asked the disciples to take and eat and do this in Remembrance of me. It wasn't for just minimal obedience. It was, hey, are you all in? See, I'm all in. And I want people who are following me or who are all in. They're becoming more real as they get to know me. Let's pray together. Lord, there's something about this table that reminds us that one day we'll sit across the table from you face to face. And we'll sit with people from every tribe and tongue and nation because you have authority over every tribe and tongue and nation. So I pray for your disciples here that they would They would grow in their Christ-likeness. This communion table would be a reminder, a helpful, an encouragement for them. For those who are here who are severed, may you speak to their hearts and ask them, help them evaluate what they're attaching themselves to and see its futility. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.